Welcome to ADHD is over, a new podcast on a seemingly old label that we're going to be peeling off. Join my wife, Tatiana, and I as we journey with our family, the Wyden family, through the land of confusing information. We're going to visit both sides and let you decide because the power is with you. Welcome to ADHD is over. Welcome back to our podcast. My guest today is Dr. Enrico Nalati, a clinical psychologist based in Pasadena, California, and affiliate professor of psychology at Seattle University. His work has been featured on Spectrum News, Al Jazeera America, China Global Television Network, KPCC Los Angeles, KPFK Los Angeles, KBBS San Diego, WBUR Boston, KPFA Berkeley, and online at The Atlantic, Salon and Psychology Today, as well as reviewed in the Huffington Post, The Australian, and The New Yorker. He's also a blogger for Madden America, a nationally recognized reformer of mental health practice and policy, and the author of the following books, Back to Normal, Why Ordinary Childhood Behavior is Mistaken for ADHD, Bipolar Disorder, and Autism Spectrum Disorder, Saving Talk Therapy, How Health Insurers, Big Pharma, and Slanted Science Are Ruining Good Mental Health Care, and Emotion Regulating Play Therapy with ADHD Children, Staying with Playing. Dr. Nalati has established himself as a leading ethical voice in the area of quality mental health care, having raised serious issues with so-called evidence-based treatments in psychology. Today, I'm very excited and, of course, curious because Dr. Nalati and I are going to talk about why ordinary childhood behaviors are mistaken for ADHD. Really, why? Dr. Nalati, welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, it's, it's a joy to, to be interviewed. Great. Well, I'm going to jump right in. So um, you are someone who I can tell who dives deep into topics when you're inspired and You've written on many, many different subjects. Um, my, the one that interests me, obviously, for selfish reasons, is ADHD. And um, I just want to uh, start there. And, and my first question is a very simple question, but uh, your book was called Back to Normal, Why Ordinary Childhood Behavior is Mistaken for ADHD, Bipolar Disorder and Autism Spectrum Disorder. So that said, in your opinion, what is ADHD? Well, sort of a formal answer to that question in terms of just the, 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 the criteria that make up the disorder, um, it's, it's a disorder that is, it's the most commonly diagnosed disorder with children worldwide, for starters, and current estimates are that about 10 or 11% of American children are ascribed that diagnosis. But it's, there are three types. There's uh, uh, ADHD hyperactive type. These are uh, uh, kids who are squirmy, restless, have trouble waiting their turn, interrupt, intrude in social situations, have trouble engaging in kind of low key, in a low key way in the way that they play. They're impulsive. So that, that, that's the cluster of hyperactive symptoms. And then symptoms of inattention, there's an inattentive type. So you can have ADHD and be hyperactive with, uh, without inattention. You can be ADHD and be inattentive without hyperactivity, and you can have both. The inattentive type would be 
kids who are have short attention spans they are easily distracted they're forgetful they're careless when it comes comes to details the, the, these sorts of you know phenomena that you see in children and so you know it's it's a uh, a, a formal neuropsychiatric condition the most common one ascribed to children and that you know that's my formal answer my more you want i can also give you a more cynical yeah, common sense answer well that's great because you know i love the formal answer i've heard it so many times it's almost like right there's the bible the dsm uh -huh. uh, and and what yeah what i'm really curious about is your informal uh, uh answer especially based on your research that you did back then right okay so the more informal common sense maybe somewhat cynical answer would be that it's a condition that gets strong consideration uh when a child exhibits maturational delays especially in kindergarten um and can't keep up with the demands that are beyond his or her developmental capacities right so that would be one more kind of informal answer and then the next one would be in our performance driven culture where we're obsessed with kind of data-driven outcomes and data-driven approaches to evaluate progress uh, adhd is a condition that can be that can give kids who are falling behind who think that they should be uh uh, uh, uh ahead of the game a uh, a leg up so, such that if they are able to be um assigned that diagnosis and put on meds then there's neuro enhancing effects and performance and boosting effects from being on stimulants that would be a more informal cynical answer mm. and then what about so uh, your book uh, talks about these childhood behaviors right that they're then misdiagnosed or mislabeled as uh, for as a ment for a mental disorder, right? When you say normal childhood behavior, first let's start with the word normal. Mm -hmm. um, what wh what do you hear when you hear the word normal? A normal child? No, that, that's a very good question. I think, and and at some point during you know our conversation. Um, you know, I, I want to speak to just how I think that the average mental health professional and physician and educator, uh, ironically, does, doesn't have a good, solid sense of what's normal these days, uh, at least acquired from, from their education. But I would say what's normal these days is uh, that kids are maybe more regressed in their behavior, more self-focused more kind of narcissistically oriented in ways that that sort of play out that 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 uh, make them appear like they have uh, diagnoses like ADHD. So, mm. for instance, um, I think in our child-centered uh, uh, for for parents who are more child-centered in their orientation and more per permissively child-centered. Many kids have been raised without, uh, on a steady diet of easy praise, sort of led to believe that they're special just by being born, that they don't have to um, uh, uh, prove their worth, they don't have to show what they know, 
And it can lead to sort of so, a soft sense of entitlement where they enter the classroom with brimming with overconfidence and false confidence, whereby they, in more subtle ways, uh, underprepare, uh, uh, underpractice, uh, because they feel so overconfident. And then in evaluative context in the average school where they're required to show what they know in order to, in order to prove their worth, the wheels come off emotionally. And oftentimes their pride is injured and that can manifest itself with a set, set of habits and behaviors that are ADHD-like. So sometimes forgetfulness is nothing other than overconfidence leading to underpreparing. Right. So, you know, so you're not forgetting information that you over rehearsed. You're forgetting information that you f didn't really fully <laughs> attend to. Right. Mm -hmm. So that, that would be one approach or kids. sort of the way that sort of normal childhood narcissism, you know, may be slightly outside the center line of the bell curve. Also, you know, you have kids that may approach school with a sense of personal entitlement. They're used to sort of uh, uh, being treated as special and unique. And so they go into the classroom and all of a sudden they have to share the attention of a teacher along with whatever, 20, 30 other pupils. And they're not used to that. And so they may act up, engage in attention-seeking behavior because they're so used to being kind of the center of their parents' universe and they don't have it in their kind of emotional repertoire to really uh, 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 cope under those sorts of circumstances. Mm. So, And I could talk more about that. Also, when it comes to this normal childhood narcissism, uh, one avenue, I would argue, to healthy self-esteem is children uh, wanting to display their talents in ways that gain recognition, sort of moments of brilliant, notice my moment of brilliance kinds of experiences that uh, if those sorts of moments being raised in a child-centered home uh, uh, where a child is overindulged along those lines or even underindulged for that matter, they can enter the school system with what are called exhibitionistic needs where they want to show their stuff, show what they're good at. And they may be more amplified in the way they go about that. And it appears annoying and kind of hyperactive. And the, these kids may often be just narcissistically needed, needy rather than ADHD per se. Mm -hmm. So the, these so, so getting back to original question, I think, you know, uh, uh, it's normal for kids to behave in these ways. And if an educator or a professional like myself doesn't quite understand these kinds of narcissistic self-focused phenomena, then you don't have good frameworks in your head for teasing apart, okay, what is an example of a true disorder versus a child who's just sort of... Uh, displaying these kind of soft signs of narcissism that frankly just need to be worked with. Yeah, it's interesting. Would it, would it be fair to say that narcissism is a coping mechanism to not having gotten the right kind of attention 
from their environment, parents, uh, early stages of childhood, right? And so then it's almost a, uh, you know, when we say these kids can't pay attention, or is it really more that they're not getting the right attention? So they need to try to get attention and we think they can't pay attention. It's kind of weird, right? That's, that's a, I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. I think with a subpopulation of kids, that's true, where maybe they, uh, they have a, they're raised in a household where well-intentioned parents who are professionally preoccupied, just uh, are, uh, uh, that can play itself out where children don't get the right kind of recognition at the right, time repeatedly the, we, we might call those like like tiny little micro misattunements let's not call them yes. traumas because right. because trauma is a word that's overused in our culture right now but we'll call them micro misattunements the, I like that. the cumulative effect of which yeah can lead to a kid who's sort of narcissistic, narcissistically needed and comes into the classroom over exuberantly raising their hand because they had the right answer and they want, they want a narcissistic moment to show that, you know, that they're right. And, but yeah, you know, there's 20 other kids in the classroom, five of whom are equally as narcissistically needed, also vigorously raising their hands. And that teacher all of a sudden is underwater with five over exuberant, narcissistically needed kids, narcissistically needed kids. And then that teacher is at risk for saying, hmm, are these kids disordered in some ways? Or ought right. I to refer out to the special education staff and so on and so forth? So that's, well, that's interesting because I, I wanted to add, and I love the micro misattunements. That's great because I think that. I want to add to when I say that these kids are not getting the right attention, right? Often parents are like, no, no, but I'm, I'm there. And we go for ice cream and we do things, but it's not just the, not just being there, but it's the true sense of being present, right? Like, yes. like the child is everything in that moment. There's no yeah. work, no distractions. There you go. Yeah. But then we live in a society that actually promotes distraction, multitasking, mm -hmm. busyness, like work, like, you know, I hate the word grit, you know, it comes up with so many Ivy League uh, parents who are like, well, my, my child needs to have grit. Yeah, I get it. But that's, that's I think, inside of this capitalistic machine, what that means is that they want to get to the top and be a big player, right? But what I wanted to say is that I feel like um, we have a society with social media and, and video games and all this like me, 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 me likes and friends and right that we're essentially training our kids to, to want to, to, to want that attention because that is what gives you validation, even though we know it's, it's empty and hollow. Right. But society, we're doing that to our kids. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, I think many parents then overcompensate when they're overly busy and overly preoccupied and then well-intentioned, not malicious, right. right. Uh, then overpraise and 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 it may alleviate their guilt in the moment, but it might not be what the kid actually needs. Yeah, be better that that praise be uh, uh, expressed when when it's a tr a true win, a true victory, a true overcoming, a true reaching beyond oneself as a kid. Where there's where there's a coupling of effort and success, 
and something to feel genuinely proud about, better that that parent sparingly, you know, express that praise until those kinds of moments. Yeah. See, those are the parenting instructions and classes. No one teaches you when you have a child, you know, you're just like, go for it. Have at it. Um, Well, you can't praise enough. Right. (laughs) Versus be, 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 be stingy with that praise. And execute it in the right way at the right time under the right circumstances. And that will boost your child's, truly boost your child's self-esteem. That's great. Um, Before we go into my next question, which has to do with overdiagnosis, I just want to check in with you because in your opinion, this is, so we had the official answer, what is ADHD? Then we had the sort of unofficial. Now, beyond that, is there more, when you look at this, so-called disorder that you say it doesn't really exist but it's it's a term we made up it's a label and we you know it's a medical shorthand if you will or psychological shorthand but really these kids don't have it because it is a uh, i forgot who said that but it's discovered it's not discovered like like a true disease but it's mm-hmm. it's been it's been um uh, uh, what is the word manufactured? Uh, yeah. It's been manufactured, yeah. created, right? So it's different. Um, how do you feel about when someone says I have ADHD or I have it somewhere in my body? Or my- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously when, uh, a, a parent consults with me and they're convinced their child is ADHD, um, I don't, dispute that. I'm tactful. I'm respectful. I don't want to um, sure, be sure. overzealous and, and, and kind of insensitive in the way I approach situations like that. Uh, I, I, I get them to open up and describe in great detail. I take time with parents. Part of the problem that these diagnoses are, 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 are overdiagnosed is because professionals don't take the time and do a thorough job of assessing kids. And we, we can kind of talk about that if you want. But my, my, my latest belief is that, that these disorders do exist. The ADHD does exist. It's a genuine affliction. Um, but it's probably much rarer, maybe, I don't know, one to 2% of kids instead of 10% of kids. Um, and that, uh, uh, curiously, many kids go in and out of fitting the criteria for the disorder, depending on their life circumstances. You know, this, and this is, a, this is an indisputable scientific fact that 75 to 80% of people who are diagnosed with ADHD as children no longer meet the criteria for the disorder by the time they hit their mid-20s. Yeah. So it's a disorder that the vast majority of children outgrow over time, which is a real curiosity to me. So, so now yeah. you start to th- say, did they really have it to begin with? Is it a disorder that is a sort of transitory one that comes and goes and we ought to think about it that way? Um, Or is it uh, mostly for most kids, a disorder that comes into play with a perfect storm of developmental events, 
uh, uh, environmental events, academic expectations, reactivity, emotional reactivity in the parent-child relationship, difficult personality traits. It's all of that soup, interactive soup, perfect storm of events that can make a child symptomatic off and on where the label hmm, can help and the medication can help. We can talk about that or help and hinder depending on circumstances, yeah. which is a highly complex way of thinking about it. Uh, but I think is, is prob probably legitimate. Yeah. And, and I think that uh, we live in a society where we as the parents also don't have the time uh, and the energy to invest in a longer term process, like you said, in like true talk therapy, right? Keeping that alive in the truest sense of uh, mental health care uh, needs time. It needs mm -hmm. time and it needs the interest, well, the expertise, but also the interest of a expert like yourself to really spend time with the child, with the parents, and to really get a full picture before even uh, uh, prescribing or suggesting uh, a Band-Aid such as medication or, or other therapies that technically, if, if done right, by the, the, the time the child turns 20 or in their 20s, might be gone. Right? Mm -hmm. But we don't take that time. We, we, we no. just want it fixed now so the grades are up next semester. And, right? Why do you think that is? Why do you think, obviously, society's speed yeah uh but convenience but, speed mm -hmm. uh uh frankly the adhd diagnosis as we we keep kind of dancing around the issue is 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 driven the over diagnosing problem is driven mostly uh by teachers so p part of it is is that teachers will flag a child uh, raise concerns with parents who then get distressed, go to a pediatrician's office. Uh, the average uh, uh, length of a pediatric visit these days, I think, is 16 minutes. And so you have this, uh, 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 once again, perfect storm of events where it's almost teeing up, teeing the situation up for an ADHD diagnosis to quell the distress that's brought about by teachers who are banging the drum for immediate change. Uh, not, not what you're saying, change that might occur at the five-year mark with a multi-pronged approach. No, change that needs to come at the five-day mark, you know, because uh, there's yeah. urgent, because, because to render that child more educable in the classroom as immediately as possible. And do you think, so that's definitely one thing I agree, teachers, uh, and look, I'm not blaming all teachers, and mm -hmm. I, as I know you are not either, but there are teachers that are really inconvenienced by these children because, yes, they are, um, because there is a, a, a friction in the environment, right, between them and the school, there is irritation, of course, I get it. Mm -hmm. But, but so there's the teachers, but then there's also, and I want to ask you from your experience, I'm sure you've also had parents come to you and say, I know my child has ADHD. Can you please, right? Because they're, they're, they're seeing the ads on TV, the mm -hmm. teacher and the principal, and it's almost like they are already convinced that that's what mm -hmm. it is before getting tested. Does that still happen? Quite often? Yes, but frankly, one of the reasons 
I wrote the book, Back to Normal, was because I, I learned over the years that the average parent with a difficult child is not necessarily looking for a diagnosis. They're looking for a, a, a viable explanations. Why is my child behaving this way? And we've, we've become so good at medicalizing children's behavior that those are the those are the the predominant frameworks that parents reach towards to explain their their children's difficult behavior. But over the years, I learned when I got more sophisticated and having deeper discussions about what might explain their child's behavior. Parents were very open to that. You know, the vast majority of parents are not eager to put to get a diagnosis and put their children on on medication. Research shows that they just want persuasive explanations with you know interventions that will help in some way. And we've kind of blanketed the discourse and medicalized ways that that, that sort of essentially uh, uh, make parents believe that that medicalized ways of uh, of understanding their children's behavior is, is sort of the only game in town. And so let's talk about overdiagnosis then. What do you think uh, you, you started with the teachers? So there's that. Um, what other factors um, contribute to this? Sounds like a fairly big overdiagnosis. If we're saying one to 2% might actually have uh, this disorder, uh, then the other 8% kind of are unlucky that they got thrown into this net, right? So what- oh, they, they were, Many of them would consider themselves lucky because they get to be on a stimulant and now they're, you know, they're getting sort of A's and B's instead of B's and C's just mm-hmm. simply as an artifact of the chemical, the neuro-enhancing performance boosting effects of, of, of stimulants. So, they, so I guess the, the unlucky part would be in the long the long term effect, right? There's the those studies that show that it affects motivation in the long term and the brain structure. So I guess I, I was looking forward into the future of like unlucky you then now it might you might be lucky, right? But what what um, talk to me about the system that's responsible for the overdiagnosis in general uh, with pharma with education with the the practitioners and you know the the main issue and unfortunately i'm gonna have to return to the sort of the educational explanations i mean the main and it's this has been shown in the research that the spike in diagnoses is is, uh, mostly occurring in younger age children so you're, you're seeing this trend among kids, if you're younger in age or slower to mature in kindergarten, you have a 30% uh, chance of get greater chance of getting an ADHD diagnosis. So kindergarten has sort of become the new first grade. If you go back a few decades in terms of the first no child left behind educational policies that trickled down across the country, uh, you, you you can trace the rise in numbers to those educational policies, so much so that the the typical case of a false diagnosis would be a younger in, in age uh, uh, kindergartner who enters that system um, uh, either ill prepared or developmentally slower to mature 
to handle the ac academic requirements thrust upon him or her, right? Uh, and added to that, um, there's less opportunities for recess and play for those younger kindergartners to burn off the stress caused by those uh, unfavorable uh, um, uh, uh, academic expectations. So there's that double whammy of being required to uh, 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 engage in uh, um, reading and writing tasks uh, beyond one's capacities and then being deprived of the active play experiences that you might be, that might be the, the typical uh, uh, child's go-to to just burn off stress. And so that phenomena right there in and of itself, I think is one reason for the spike. The, I mean, there's a host of other ones. But there must've been a moment, I'm sure, where the pharmaceutical companies realized if we come in there now into the schools, and I've had a few uh, mothers who I've interviewed and one in particular that happened to in the, uh, I think it was in the late eighties, uh, sorry, uh, in the early nineties, where pharma came into the school and brought their brochures and their incentives and all this stuff because they realized that this might be right. So, so it's not just a school system, but there were, there were also outside source forces that came in and said, Hey, we can fix this. Right. Yeah. The marketing juggernaut of big pharma, I mean, direct to consumer advertising, you know, ads on TV and then celebrities being, uh, 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 uh announcing, their ADHD and 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 um, offering testimonials about how, how they uh, uh, use meds to cope with that, and it sort of normalizing the ADHD diagnosis as a gateway to medication use. And you know, let's not uh, uh, beat around the bush. If you get an ADHD diagnosis, seventy percent of kids with ADHD are on stimulant medication. So it's, it's probably um, more than any other diagnosis, it's sort of a gateway to medication, more so than anxiety, depression, certainly autism spectrum disorder, or even learning disorders, you know, too. There's no, that hand in glove approach to a diagnosis and a medication you don't tend to see as exquisite, you know, as with, with other uh, mental health conditions. Yeah, that's certainly, um... I was going to, we were going to talk about that a little more later, but, um, you know, what, what effects do you think a label like, right? Like a diagnosis can have, because I've heard experts who say, oh, it doesn't have an effect on kids. You know, I had one recently with uh, Dr. Leonard Sachs and I said, don't you think the word disorder is not necessarily an empowering word? He's like, I disagree. And I said, well, if we would ask a hundred people on the street, if they would be willing to date someone with a disorder, would they say yes and jump at yes? Or would they be like, uh, what kind of disorder is, it? you know, yeah. I wanted to make a point that for a seven-year-old to hear that he has a disorder, what do you think? Does that have any impact on, on, on that child? Uh, just quickly, let me say, you know, there's some research that shows, you know, we, in the age of the brain, you know, it's assumed that it's less stigmatizing to talk about chemical imbalances and broken brains or miswired brains. There's actually some research that shows 
the kids who are given that narrative actually feel more discouraged because they feel like they have something that's inherently wrong, like a, yeah. a malfunctioning brain that, that doesn't work, nor will it ever. I actually think it's unethical to talk that way to kids because the research shows that 75 to 80% of those kids will outgrow that diagnosis. And the science really buttresses a perspective that the so-called ADHD brain is really a slow to mature brain. That when you, when you look at brain scans and you study them in great detail systematically, that uh, children that are thought to have ADHD, that their brain development is maybe about three years behind and it's not until age 25 and upwards that there's catch up. So, so first off, I think there's some ethical concerns that come into play speaking that way in terms of just sort of disordered brands. But getting back to your question about labels, I, you know, I'm going to start with a more positive perspective. And frankly, it's because of a recent experience I just had with a girl in this very office right here, whom I tested and gave her a diagnosis of a, um, a, a mathematics disorder, right? So th this was a girl who uh, tested well above average in terms of her intellectual potential and was a hardworking, diligent, sweet, middle-aged girl who was beside herself for years because she kept failing in math. Parents got tutors. She worked harder and harder and harder, and her scores didn't, you know, uh, measurably rise in any way. She found her way to my office. I did the testing, and she had a clear-cut case of a, a learning disorder, mathematics disorder. And when I, and when I told her that, she wept with great relief that finally she knew that there was something, there was a limitation there that was a fundamental limitation, probably brain-based, that finally could be identified and that she, and so then I use my authority as a psychologist to basically sit her down with her parents to let her know, know about this and to, to kind of tell her there's no shame in this. This is just a, a true area of vulnerability and that's sad that it hadn't been identified sooner. And that, and that she ought not to overgeneralize and think that she was not a bright person or a smart student in other domains, that she just needed to be strategic about this and accept that she's going to need accommodations like regular use of a calculator, untimed tests, maybe having to take courses one or two grade levels be, uh, below in math, just to get through math or substitute math classes for logic classes, whatever she could do strategically just to survive those math requirements until she was growing up, never had to take a math class again and pay someone else to, you know, balance her checkbook for her. Yeah. So what? And that was, so giving herself that label of someone who had a math mathematics disorder, you know, a learning disorder in math came as a gigantic relief to her. So I have to say up front that sometimes in the, in the best cases, labels actually can um, improve a child's life situation. Right. And, and I've heard but, that before, uh -huh. right? Sorry, I interrupted you. 
You want me to keep, I'll keep going and give you the, no, the sure. negative. Yeah, one. please, please. Where, where a label uh, does a disservice to a child is where they really don't have a disorder. And so then they believe that these limitations that for whatever reason they're having uh, are outside of their control. And there's no point in trying harder, persevering more, or frankly, microanalyzing the conditions in their life that bring out the best in them and versus the worst in them in terms of their academic performance and get smart and trying to kind of, you know, do workarounds or try harder in certain areas. So it takes it, what it can do is then decouple performance from effort in ways that can disadvantage them over the long run and make them feel like something as effortless as taking a pill will get them the performance that they desire versus stepping up, frankly, and just persevering and more being more effortful. Yeah, that, that would be the main uh, mm -hmm. reason. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And what I'm hearing is that when there truly is a, uh, we can call it a disorder, I should say a challenge in an area of life where someone is just not as good as one skill, you know, than someone else, then once we know that that's our, let's call it a handicap or a challenge oh, that we a can true just limitation is what I like to call it. or true limitation, true limitation, right? Yeah. And you can accommodate your life to get support. Mm -hmm. And isn't, isn't that what we do? Uh, you know, when we go see a therapist or we get a coach when, as we're golfing, or right, every big every big athlete has a coach. I mean, mm -hmm. I feel like that makes sense. But when it comes to kids, for some reason, we don't think that way. We go once they need somebody to step in and and support them with something. They obviously must not be normal, or they're not smart, or blah, you know, whatever the conversation is. Yeah, I think you're touching upon a really important point, Roman. That are one of the reasons for the overdiagnosis of disorders like ADHD is that we're in this uh, unusual situation where in order for a child uh, uh, to obtain sometimes just common sense modifications of the sort that you're, or, or additional help, mm -hmm. that, you, that we have a school system that requires that a child get a diagnosis in order to authorize that in a highly formal, almost legalistic way. Yep. If, if by chance we could alter that such that there were uh, um, trends within the average school system for kids in informal ways to, uh, to just get extra help because they're going through a difficult period in their life for whatever reason and get access to extra time on tests, uh, uh, you know, a, a lessening of homework requirements, you know, this, the, the sort of accommodations that you need to have a diagnosis to get, if we could somehow to informalize that, I think that right there would reduce the number of diagnoses overnight. Well said. Yeah, it just gave me this thought of like, what if, you know, there's floating tutors in the school because parents get tutors outside of school. So you can go back into school to perform as normal or right standardized. Mm -hmm. But how come we don't have those tutors available floating around school during the school year? Because kids are going to struggle with stuff. Right. Yeah. And you're right. Uh, you can't get that until you have a diagnosis.
There and you then go. it's too late because then you're labeled as like, oh, these are the kids that are not as smart. They need help. Yeah. So, so even people who have fairly liberal, you know, attitudes about all of this, uh, I'm often put in, in a situation where, uh, you know, uh, in order to be of help, I have to assign a diagnosis, even though I, but they may meet the criteria for a disorder, but not have it because it's explained in other ways, the ways that I, I outline in my book. But in order for them to get, in order for a kid to get the help they need in order to, to progress developmentally, it's like the, it's the tail wagging the dog. I mean, you need to assign the diagnosis in order to get the, you know, the, the, the tailored kinds of uh, intervention. When you say it that way, it's very clear that there's some backwards mechanisms in our system that don't allow for this to clean up, you know? Yeah. Um, like I, I can't get on the phone to a teacher and say, Hey, you know, Francisco is having a particularly difficult academic year. His parents are getting divorced. You know, he, he broke his ankle, you know, uh, playing soccer last weekend. And so he, you know, and soccer is his go-to go to make him feel like he's got a capable body. You know, he's become more shy than usual. Uh, um, his, uh, uh, his dad lost his job. Uh, you know, and, and, and outline normal everyday kind of stressors that kids feel uh, or go through, sorry, endure, and then say to the to the teacher, what do you think about, you know, backing off on some homework requirements for a while or, or you know, allowing him to have untimed tests, you know, or, you know, hit him with fewer quizzes this week. That, that, that on the face of it sounds like the humane thing to do, but yeah. there's no, there's no avenue. And, you know, to, to enact those common, that common sense approach to interventions in our current school system. And I'm assuming that's still because we're in this industrial age type of uh, system that needs to churn out standardized test takers so that they can go out into the work, workforce, right? So that, that conveyor belt isn't interrupted. There's that. There's also these strange, pious ideas about, about how we, it's all, you know, I, like, you know, parents will say, I love all my children equally because they don't want to make any, even though they don't, right? They have one <laughs> child that they love more than the other. Or they, 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 they're more, uh, you know, uh, uh, match with in terms of temperament yeah. and whatnot, right? But, but, that, but that, that sort of, it, you know, that uh, uh, idea that you, you need to treat all children equally and you can't make allowances in any way because then that creates situations of unfairness and inequity that will give certain kids a performance boost in our performance obsessed classroom environment so let's let's try to kind of keep the playing field as even as possible and have the standards that we judge every kid by we've I don't know, like Roman even in college these days a syllabus is like a legal document you have to like professors have to like have all the steps that they're going to take to in terms of how they're going to evaluate students and assign grades because it becomes almost this legal quagmire if you don't because then in this in our performance obsessed culture everybody's looking for an angle to kind of get ahead or or remedy a bad grade and so 
it creates these uh, ugly conditions where then uh, teachers and professors have to be more obsessed with a, a sort of a, 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 um, issues of e equity and how they evaluate students that, mm. that kind of render it difficult to have more informal, just common sense conversations about, you know, kids and what they may need to get them, you know, to help them cope better in the classroom. It sounds like to me, again, uh, we're out of attunement with our children in general in society. We're not allowing them to uh, uh, be raised, you know, to have a childhood that is that fosters their talents or their unique character, you know, because when we standardize them, that gets squashed. Right. And well, that that brings me to the, quite the next question or going back to medication. What do you feel? Uh, well, two psychological and physical or biological effects of uh, using these stimulant drugs, you know, for the long term, not just as a band aid for a while, but like, you know, millions of people are using them long term into their 20s, yeah. 30s, 40s. What do you know about or, uh, know, you know, in terms of the effects on a person? Well, I mean, I, I document some research in my book, Back to Normal that uh, the most robust research shows that the, the stimulants work for probably about two years, upwards of two years, and then beyond that, the, the effects of them wear off. So much so that by the time kids hit the teenage years and then the college age years, they're, they're, uh, they're less likely to take them because they don't work as, as much. And it's always uh, a struggle uh, you know, that's an overstatement. In my experience, probably in about a third of cases, kids will be on them, they'll get they'll, they'll be able to sit, sit in their seat longer, concentrate for longer, be less emotionally reactive. And frankly, for a lot of parents and teachers, it's literally overnight, right? Because the effects of the stimulants, they kick in within what, 30 minutes, and then they remain for about five hours. And that makes that child just simply more educable and manageable. And most teachers and parents will say, I'll take that. Those effects start to wear off after a couple of years. Uh, um, and so uh, th they're not really a long-term solution, uh, Not number one. Uh, I'm not sort of up to date on what the effects are uh, on the brain. I mean, uh, uh, there's some re research that I did dig into a few years back because I was curious if it, um, if being on stimulants for an extended period of time would put a, a child at risk for later kind of dr drug abuse. And I think that there's research that's pro and con on that matter. Uh, but I don't know enough about it to speak about it in an informed manner. Yeah. Sure. No, I understand. And what about the effect of, I call it the dependency, right? To, to think that unless I have this, this pill I take every day, I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not focused enough. Uh, that must create some kind of dependency, almost like an, an addiction, wh whether we go into addiction to the pills, you know, for, uh, as, as a drug, but like, there must be some psychological, um, I don't want to say damage, but something that creates a dependency, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. where, where a kid then thinks that their only 
capable of performing to the to, you know uh, best when they're when they're on that medication. Yeah. You know, I I've seen a full range. You know, over the years in my experience, everything from kids who can't tell the difference on it or off it, but their parents can. So their parents demand that they be on it and their teachers can. And so their teachers demand it. So it's a peculiar, right? Even though the kid will say, well, I can't really tell the difference. Then there'll be those kids that um, uh, can tell the difference and they want to be on it, but they, they learn over time to use it strategically. They don't want to take it every day because it affects their appetite and sleep maybe. But they, they learn over time, wow, it's a performance booster if I, you know, during midterms and finals or when I have a heavy homework load. And so they segue into strategic use of it, right? Which is how college students are using. Probably there's research that shows that anywhere between 10 and 30% of college students are taking stimulants during tests. You know, in my generation, it was no dose that you would take, or you or you would or that you would sort of like guzzle Moroccan coffee. Right, right, or the five-hour energy. Down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's stimulants. There's a there's cash value to those on college campuses, and then you'll have your kids who um, who just buy into the rhetoric of it, like yeah, yeah, you know, I'm I'm going to take my meds and it's going to help me on the test, and it gives them a little social cred. They go they go to school and they tell that story, and then other kids it helps. Can I have one? And it gives them like social cred because they're passing them out to other kids. And so there's something to be gained by just believing that it helps and, and, and getting popularity points at school for convincing other kids and then passing out those meds. So that, that's one of the unintended consequences of the, you know, you know in 2011, we, in the US, we ran out of stimulants. We could seriously, really? there was a undersupply of them and the kids that really needed them didn't have access to them because so many people were using them both for uh, disordered reasons and performance enhancing. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. I recently saw one of the uh, ADHD experts uh, wanted to be unnamed here, but uh, have a, a meltdown in one of her videos. She's more of an advocate, not an expert, but. I mean, you know, she's an expert in her own way, but she had a meltdown on one of her videos because she couldn't get her meds. And that's what had me go, wow, this is a 20, I don't know, or 30 year old uh, young adult, right? That literally can't function. And it wasn't so much can't function that she couldn't function. It was almost like a hamster wheel where she was going like, well, if I don't have my meds, then this is not right. And I, you know, it, it seemed like a psychological loop, like a mental loop. And mm -hmm. I felt like, wow. So I bet you, you could do placebos and she'd probably be okay. Mm, you know, uh -huh. um, cause again, it's that, that feeling of like, oh good, I have my thing. Now mm -hmm. I can function. Right. And I'm afraid we're going to create these, uh, dependent people in the future that are outsourcing the healing and, perhaps using it as a crutch or even so often it's a, it's a excuse, right? It's a, I call it, it's a bit of a victimhood kind of thing to say, oh, well, I have a disorder and I can't. And again, in the most extreme cases, there is, like you said, there's an affliction there. There's a disorder 
Yes. Mm-hmm. But I think it's now, like you said, it's spilling into mainstream coolness to say, oh, I take Adderall, I'm going to go study and, you know, and then I'll sell another pill to my friend. And it just sort of trails out into the universe like that. Yeah. And, and, and it's a, in my experience, it's, it's a conversation stopper. If somebody said, yeah, it's my ADHD, you know, I, 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 I forgot to hand in my assignment on time. It's my ADHD. That's a conversation stop. It's sort of like, wh- where do you go after that in terms of, right? well, what, take your medic- be sure to take your medication so you hand in your assignment on time next time? I mean, wh- where do you go with that conversation? And the next time it's like, oh, I was out of meds. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> try to have backup meds. <laughs> you know, wh- <laughs> you where do you end, right? Um, so I want to talk about one more thing, and I love your term of uh, micro misattunements. Let's talk about trauma. And again, micro misattunements are, of course, part of that. And then there's like uh, graver forms of trauma. But um, there's been some studies that I've seen that uh, there's a big overlap uh, with trauma and ADHD, like the symptoms of, uh, especially even PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, we usually think it's about veterans and going to war and coming back and seeing atrocities, but um, there's many forms of PTSD and uh, uh, some call it uh, developmental trauma mm-hmm. uh, that happened during that time. What do you hear when you hear ADHD and trauma? How does that mm-hmm. dance for you? Well, I have a sort of a complicated uh, understanding of all of that. Because, uh, you know, there is, I, I like to differentiate between like discrete traumas, like maybe somebody breaking into your house and, you know, and, 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 and assaulting a parent or witnessing a drive-by shooting in your neighborhood or being, you know, witnessing domestic abuse at home, like sort of discrete traumatic events. Yeah, that the, for children that, uh, uh, that have, that, that, or encounter trauma like that, yeah, they're more they're more likely to present in, in an ADHD like manner. They may seem distracted, they may seem uh, uh, forgetful, they may seem to like to not pay attention to details. They may be kind of revved up because they're recycling traumatic memories in their head, and that that's uh, uh, unconsciously, not necessarily consciously, right? So. So there's that brand of trauma that sort of interfaces with ADHD, but something that doesn't get a lot of press that is probably more uh, of a confound is what I like to call ambient trauma. And it gets back to my notion of micro attunements. If you grew up in a household where by temperament, I'm a kid, I'm introverted and I have an extroverted parent and that parent's voice are in our D and D throughout my childhood is long louder, and their behavior is more animated than by temperament I can tolerate. I'm getting impinged upon constantly in terms of my comfort levels, my sensory comfort levels, my emotional comfort levels. I would call that sort of ambient trauma. Or if you're a kid who's sort of artistically inclined and you have aesthetic preferences. And you grew up in a household with parents who have zero, you know, artistic sensibility. And it's like a mishmash of cheap art on the wall, (laughs) uh, unpleasant colors uh, or or music that is just so outside of your tastes 
that you're that you're sort of impinged upon constantly. So just just ordinary everyday mismatches between a child's temperament, their sensory preferences, their aesthetic pre preferences, their emotional preferences, their communicative preferences, their cognitive preferences. These kind of mismatches, the cumulative effect of these over time can create children who are just hyper aroused, hyperactive, flooded, you know, emotionally flooded, sensorily flooded a lot. And so having to kind of take desperate measures to cope that can make them present kind of ADHD like I'm interested in those more subtle forms of micro traumas that are kind of ambient traumas that are baked into just a normal life. I love that. Yeah. So would you say then, for example, a, a child who's going through a divorce, that that's sort of a discrete trauma, but perhaps has some ambient trails or micro traumas later, <laughs> right? Following. Yeah. Uh, Trickle, trickle trauma. <laughs> it really depends. Is, is, is this a child who, who's witnessed acrimony, conflict, hatefulness, contempt, right, a steady dose of that, yeah. such that the divorce temporarily actually comes as a relief so that the parents living apart stops the emotional bleeding so that that's sort of like a less traumatized kids because the kids seen it coming. And at least over the short run, there's relief, right? That's one possible outcome versus a kid who has parents who just fall out of love, right? Not a lot of acrimony. They seem civil with each other. They seem caring towards each other. They seem respectful to each other but they seek a divorce because they no longer love each other. That's a qualitatively different kind of trauma for a kid. Sometimes right. that kind of trauma can be worse because the kid doesn't see it coming. And frankly, that's one of the essential definitions of trauma. Having a extraordinarily stressful event occur to you without being emotionally prepared for it because you didn't see it coming. And so that form of divorce is its own form of trauma for a kid. Yeah. And can kind of overnight flood a kid with all sorts of feelings. They feel betrayed because they didn't, we weren't prepared for it. They don't trust their perceptions because they didn't see mm. the cracks in the matter coming instead from an adult perspective. I could deconstruct that type of divorce a little more for you, but that that can then result in a kid going to school and then sort of out of nowhere presenting ADHD like, but then technically they shouldn't get the diagnosis because ADHD doesn't happen overnight. It's, it, it's a longstanding pattern of right. you know, hyperactivity and inattention. Yeah. Well, you've said some amazing things and I think it just sort of looking back, what we talked about is I feel that you agree that it's overdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, we talked about uh, the education system has a big influence on uh, the overdiagnosis, and that you know kids get flagged. Right, that's a big factor there. And then um, talking about this uh, discrete trauma, ambient trauma, the micro misattunements that there's also mislabeling that can happen when when children uh, uh, show up that way. 
And then I love what we talked about, which is that, you, you know, ADHD can be outgrown. There's studies, right, that you don't have it for life. But the, the last question I want to ask, this is for parents, is very important. Like there's all these myths, right? It's like it's a disorder. It lasts for life. Medication's the only most effective and uh, uh, it's genetic. And so in, in other words, what parents hear is that, look, you got dealt a bad hand of cards and I'm sorry, but you better get used to it, right? That's what we were told too with my son. So how do you, what can you say to parents that hear these, uh, these quick sound bites from these experts out there that sort of make it feel like a bit of a doomsday uh, prediction for the rest of their child's life? What would yeah. you say to, to parents about those um, claims or myths that you hear out there? I would say to parents, always approach professionals with a healthy dose of skepticism. Always, always, always. Unfortunately, most professionals that are in the business of diagnosing disorders in children, I think are inadequately trained. They really don't have the background in child development. They often do not um, uh, uh, start an assessment from the standpoint of let's rule out a perfect storm of unfavorable events in a child's life, explaining how they become symptomatic and then move to a diagnosis once they've ruled all that out. It's the reverse. They tend, you know, it's the whole, the old adage, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. If you're in the business of diagnosing children, you're going to be selectively attentive to viewing certain behaviors through the lens of pathology. And that's how the vast majority of professionals in my business are trained. So parents, be skeptical. Uh, uh, trust your own intuitions. Trust your own common sense. Actually, be an amateur scientist on your own. If you know from your own observations that your child appears ADHD-like in, in a math class, but not in an English class, or have a teacher who has no problems whatsoever with your child and another who has lots of problems with your child, if he doesn't or she doesn't appear ADHD at home, but does at school or the reverse, or went through a year where he or she seemed ADHD-like off the charts, but then the next year, peculiarly, uh, had a sort of a personality change, be open to all of that and don't be quick to buy into the, these narrow, simplistic, reductionistic narratives that professionals, the medical and mental health professionals and educators sort of buy into and just go on that long-term journey with your child and go on that long-term parenting journey to sort of uh, uh, micro-examine the context in which your ch child happens to be symptomatic and try to kind of do what works. And then when it stops working, move on and try something different. And frankly, sometimes it might be medication, sometimes it may not. Sometimes it may be an expert tutor. Sometimes it may be being gun ho with the school system. 
in terms of knowing what kinds of teachers work for your child and what kind of teachers don't and advocate heavily for your child getting a pattern of certain kinds of teachers. Um, sometimes this sounds awful. Sometimes you may need to seek out the, and I don't mean this in a manipulative way, like game the system way, but frankly, if a child meets the criteria for the disorder at a certain point in time, for a professional like me, they sort of have the disorder for the time being. And if, if being labeled gets them the interventions they need over the short time to just survive school better or thrive school in school better, so be it until their life circumstances change and maturity kicks in where the diagnosis no longer applies and the types of interventions they needed are unnecessary. And I wouldn't call that gaming the system. I would call that sort of like, mm, I don't know, a healthy adaptation a, or a healthy adaptive way of thinking. Beautiful. That's great. Yeah. Thank you for, for doing that. Um, well, I want to thank you for, for your time. It's been a wonderful conversation and I, I can't wait to dig further into your book. I have lots of reading to do with all the experts I talk to, but you know what? It's all been worth it because I feel like, like you said, I'm like becoming this sort of amateur scientist or, or psychologist because I have a son that was diagnosed with ADHD and I wanted to really know the, the full narrative, not just the one-sided uh, incomplete narrative. And I just want to thank you for being someone out there who uh, contributes to, to filling in what I think is missing in that narrative. Uh, which I call a more wholesome, uh, child-focused, uh, supportive, empowering uh, uh, way to to approach these challenges. So thank you, first of all, for being awesome <laughs> and uh, for your time to, to be on this podcast. Um, I really appreciate that. Well, it's been an honor and a privilege, Roman, to give me this opportunity to pack, unpack all my ideas <laughs> on a topic that's sort of near and dear to me. It was my pleasure. And then perhaps we'll do a follow-up sometime in the future. But for now, uh, thank you again and uh, all the best. You're very welcome. <laughs>